Fuck. Okay. Good evening, everyone. We are starting a couple of partios, a couple of Torah portions, which discuss the Mishkan. Uh, the Mishkan is a house for God. And we kind of take this notion of a house for God for granted because, you know, if it wouldn't be the pandemic, we'd be going to Shoal, uh, our favorite place in Israel, maybe possibly, at least for me, is the Kotel. And we think when we think of, uh, you know, a rebuilt Israel, we think of a, a Beit HaMikdash, we think of a temple. But the truth is, if we'd stop for a second and ask ourselves if this makes sense at all, it really doesn't. It really, really doesn't. The notion that God has a home that in some way God is found in this place is very strange. And it's something that Judaism places such an emphasis on trying to move away from, right? In other words, the the pagan, the idol worshipers, they had physical items that they were bowing down to. Comes along God, comes along Judaism and says, you can't see me. I'm invisible. There is nothing physical in the world that could contain me. I transcend the physical world, right? So the message of monotheism the message that God is trying to convey is that there is nothing physical about me, okay? And now that you got that message, I'm going to build myself a house and I'm going to live in this house. It's crazy, right? It's really, when you think about it, again, we take this so for granted, but when you step back for a second, you ask yourself, the notion of God making a house where he resides, where he lives, brings us back to the fundamental problem that in many ways monotheism and Judaism was trying to shift away from. We don't believe that God can be found in any physical place whatsoever. So it's very strange, right? It's very strange. And so what I want to do today is go do a bit of a survey of a number of the classical commentators addressing this question of why does God ask the Jewish people to build him a house, okay? And in the course of this discussion, we will be touching upon a couple of fundamental uh, debates within Tanakh, within the Torah, about primarily the role of the Mishkan, again, which is the, the focus of the next couple of partios. The next five partios really talk about the building of the Mishkan. So we have to ask ourselves, why? What's its function? What's its role? Right? Why do we have it? They're obviously going to, in some way, some of them more directly than others, will relate to this question of how could a God who doesn't have any physicality have a house? Again, it's not just a place we gather to pray. Again, it, it, it's a little different than our shul. We believe that the, the Mishkan, which is the precursor for the Beit HaMikdash, for the temple, was a place where God, so to speak, resided, which, again, is very problematic. So what's that all about? And all these physical artifacts, what is the goal of the Mishkan? I'm going to pause. Let's just take a second. I'm going to stop talking for a second. If someone were to stop you on the street and say, hey, you're Jewish, why in the world did God ask the Jews to build a home for him. It's a good thing you're all on mute. What would you answer, right? It's strange. It's very, very strange. Keep in mind, no one other than the Kohanim and even the Kohanim were extremely, no one really went inside. They went in just for a little bit. They did a couple of things. There was one room that the Kohen Gadol went in once a year. It, again, it wasn't a base Knesset. It wasn't just a place where people gathered to pray. The main place of the Mishkan was never entered. It was for God. It really was a home for God. Why did God need a house? What's that all about, right? It, it's, it's, it's troubling. And, and we take it for granted. So let's stop for a second. Let's not take it for granted. And let's see what our commentators have to say. And as we'll see, we'll touch upon a whole bunch of uh, different debates about a number of different big topics. Um, so I'm excited because we're touching on a lot tonight. And, and then at the end, at the end, God willing, we'll get through all this. We're going to talk about the architecture, the design of the, of the Mishkan uh, for a moment, because there's some fascinating uh, ideas about the design of the Mishkan, which I want to share with you as well. Okay, so that's my introduction. With that, let's jump in. We're going to read some sources together. So I'm going to share my screen. Um, here we go. Now, how do we do this again? Here we go. Share screen. Okay, and that's not the screen you want to see. Hold on. Okay, here we go. So we are going to go through a number of sources. Let's begin. Most of them are in English. When they are not, I will translate them for you. Let's jump into these sources, okay? So um, the first commentary we're going to see is the Ramban Nachmanides, okay? He understands, as we'll see, that the Mishkan was in many ways just a continuation 
of what took place at Harsina. Okay, so this is a translation. He goes like this. When God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel face to face, which is really what last week's Parsha and the Parsha before, Yisro and Mishpatim, described the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. And he commanded them through Moshe a few of the commandments, which are like the principles of the Torah's commandments, right? We spoke about what the function of the Ten Commandments is. This is, right, the principles. As the rabbis practice with the converts that come to be Jewish, okay. And Israel accepted to do all that he would command them through the hand of Moshe. And he made a covenant with them about all this. Behold, from then they are his as a people, and he is for them a God, as he made a condition with them from the beginning. And now if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a treasure to me. Okay? So, and he also said, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay? So basically, the goal, he says, he summarizes, what was the function of Mount Sinai? Why did the Jews gather at Har Sinai? It was like a conversion process. When a convert becomes Jewish, although the tests have progressively gotten more and more difficult, but the truth is, it's, it's basically you teach them the, the generalities, and it's a commitment to learn more. That, so that's what Har Sinai was. There was Ten Commandments. It was our introduction to Judaism. Okay, and now we are, we've given ourselves over to God. Okay, it's a commitment to learn more and a commitment to be God's people. And behold, they are holy and it is fitting that there should be a temple among them for his presence to dwell among them. Okay, so basically what the Ramban says in this one line over here, he says, look, he says they just made a relationship. And so it's fitting that there should be a place where God dwells among them. And hence, he first commanded about the matter of the tabernacle, that he should have a house among them that would be dedicated to his name. And there he would speak with Moshe and continue to command the children of Israel. Okay? So basically, he says, once God introduced himself and kindled a relationship with the Jewish people, in order to have a place from which God will continue to speak and communicate, he built this mishkan. And through the mishkan, one of the primary functions of the mishkan which we don't think about so much, is that God communicated through the Mishkan. Okay? Let's, let's keep on reading. And behold, the main object in the tabernacle is the place that the divine presence would rest, which is the ark. As he said, I will meet with you there and I will speak with you from above the ark cover. Therefore, he had the ark and the ark cover proceed here as it has precedence in its level. Okay? So basically, the first of the commandments, what's the first thing that God tells Moshe to build? He tells him, Let's stop for a second. If you don't know the Parsha, I, let, let's think this through logically. You know, we just recently moved, okay? So, did, you know, we, had, we needed some, some new furniture, right? And so we didn't first get the furniture and then get the house. That would be silly because we wouldn't have anywhere to put the furniture, right? First you get the house, then you get the furniture. But God does something very strange. God says, build for me a Mishkan. And what do you need to build? Build an ark. Whoa, slow down. I don't have a house to put that ark in, right? So why is the ark, and in truth, when, God, when Moshe went ahead and actually built the Mishkan, he first built the tabernacle, meaning, that's one of those words you'll never see in any other context, right? The building, the structure, and then he went ahead and built the ark because it doesn't make sense to build it first. But in instructing, in, in telling Moshe what to do, God says, first build the ark. The Ramban saying, Nachmanides is saying, why? Because the purpose of the Mishkan, everything really starts with the ark. What was the ark? The ark was a place where God's presence rested. And through that presence of God, God communicated to Moshe and continued to command him and instruct him and continued to teach the Jewish people the mitzvos. Right? Do you see what's going on over here? Let's read one more line. And the secret of the tabernacle is that the glory of God that dwelt on Mount Sinai also hiddenly dwells upon it. Right? Do you understand? In other words, there is the, the experience at Har Sinai. At Mount Sinai, where God appears, and then, but that's a fleeting experience. How do you hold on to that? And not just, not just uh, in terms of, you know, how do you hold on to the experience, like emotionally, but also God communicates at Har Sinai. We need a a nexus, some place, a meeting place that God will come down to earth. What's that place? That place is the Ark, which is found in the Tabernacle. So the goal of the Mishkan, according to the Ramban, is that the experience of Har Sinai needs to continue because God only told the Jewish people 10 commandments there. Where and how is he going to continue to communicate to the Jewish people? It's going to take place through the medium called Mishkan, called the tabernacle. That is the role of the Mishkan. It's it, it, God's presence, so to speak, is found in the, in the ark, okay? 
And God communicates to Moshe through the Ark, and that way they can continue getting the mitzvot, and the, and the Mishkan in some way is just a continuation of the experience of Har Sinai. Interesting? I think that's interesting, okay? Um, and, okay, let's keep on, let's keep on, let's, let's keep on reading. And we'll come to an approach which I'm sure many of you are more familiar with than the one I just read for you. This is from a comment, this is from a Midrashic teaching called Lekach Tov, um, and it's found in different variations and different sources, excuse me, um, and it goes like this. Let's, let's read it. I apologize, this is only in Hebrew. I promise, I'll translate. V'tziva es Moshe al-az Hiram al-asiyas ha-mishkan God command, instructed Moshe to instruct the Jewish people to build a mishkan and all its utensils. Why? In order to atone for the sin of the golden calf. To atone for the sin of the golden calf. Now, for those of you who are well-versed in the psukim, there's a major issue over here. The major issue is what? What's the major issue? If the whole purpose, we'll see why it atones for the golden calf in a moment. But if the goal is for it to attain, or to, to atone for the sin of the golden calf, the problem is it didn't happen yet. It didn't happen yet. In other words, let's just do a quick review of the book of the Exodus, right? Parshas Yisro, two weeks ago, we read about the giving of the Ten Commandments. Last week, we, we read some more of those commandments and really a recap of the Ten Commandments, okay. This week's Parsha, Truma, and next week, we find the instructions to build the Mishkan. And then in Kisisa, in two weeks from now, we're going to learn that the Jewish people sinned and served the golden calf. Well, we have a problem over here. We have a big problem because the golden calf, so, and yet, the instructions to build the Mishkan take place earlier, right? So we have to work this out, but we'll come back to that question. Okay, now let's let's come let's continue and, and describe what's happening here. He says, Tavo Vaasuli Mikdash. So God said the God says, make for me a tabernacle, Vechaper Alkum Aselanu Elohim. And that should that counters the words that the Jewish people said, let's get up and make for us a God. In other words, what this Midrashic teaching is doing is showing us the many parallels that exist between the golden calf and the Mishkan. The Jewish people rallied around Aaron and said, let's make a God. And God says the same terminology, let's make a Mikdash. Tavo kihilas Moshe Rabbeinu, let, let, let there be the gathering of Moshe. Moshe gathers all of the Jewish people and that counters Aaron, who the Torah tells us that everyone gathered around Aaron. So again, he's just showing that there is a certain structure, a certain similarity. All of the Jews gather around Aaron to build the golden calf. Now all the Jews are gathering around Moshe in order to build the Mishkan. Okay? Um, okay. Uh, similarly, okay. Um, um, and then we have the gold. Of course, most famously, the gold that they used to build the golden calf. Similarly, the gold is going to be used for the building of the Mishkan. Okay? So essentially what we have, the goal of the Mishkan is the Mishkan is a medium through which they are going to attain forgiveness. It's a whole different story, right? It's a whole different story. According to this approach, it has nothing to do with what took place at Sinai. And in truth, it almost sounds like had the Jews not sinned with the golden calf, they would not have built a Mishkan, which is interesting, right? The goal of the Mishkan was that the Jewish people demonstrated a certain energy to build something idolatrous. So God says, how do you atone for it? Think about when you, when you sin, right? One way of, 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 of change is to say, okay, I used my mouth for something bad. Let's say I gossiped, so I'm not going to speak at all. That's one approach, okay? Doesn't work for everyone, right? The better approach, the better approach is to say, I used my mouth for something wrong. Now I'm going to use my mouth for something right. That's what we want to do. Okay, that's how we really do tshuva. You know, they say the Chafetz Chaim, the one who really popularized all of the ideas of Shemira Salashon, of, 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 of guarding our mouth, they say he was an exceptional conversationalist. I don't know if that's true, that's the, but, but it would make sense. In other words, it wasn't like he was, a, you know, he was a, a quiet person who never spoke. No, he very much spoke, but he learned how to use his mouth for positive speech, for lifting people up, for, you know, for, for engaging people in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sophisticated, you know, in an intelligent, engaging way, kind way, uplifting way. So similarly, the Jewish people sin with, with their energy and enthusiasm and with gold. God says, okay, use that same energy and use it for something good. Cool? So the goal, according to this approach, 
The purpose of the Mishkan is to attain forgiveness. Now, um, we mentioned the problem of chronology. So there is an importance teaching, and that is that we, the Gemara tells us, Ein mukdam And what that means is that the Torah is not necessarily written in chronological order. Okay? And that's important to keep in mind because the goal of the Torah, right? We have to ask what is called How to Read a Book. How to Read a Book. Okay? Um, it was a very popular book back in the day. It's, it's intelli- basically, it, 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 it teaches you how to read a book, not, not literally read, but how to understand what the author is getting at, right? When you read a book, you want to know what's the goal of this book. What is the goal of this book? You just read it and you finish it and you're done. But there's usually an agenda of the author, right? So the Torah's agenda is to teach us morals, to guide us, Torah from the word Torah, to instruct us. It's not to teach us history. We may glean history from it. We believe that there's historical truths in the Torah, but that's not the goal of the Torah. And therefore, the notion that there are passages that are out of order is not so strange. The Chizkuni, one of the early commentators, suggests that, he says a very interesting thing. He says that when God gave the different passages of the Torah to Moshe, Moshe wrote them down on individual scrolls. It was only at the end of Moshe's life that he goes ahead and he write and he, and he combines all those scrolls into one book, what we call the Torah. But initially, it's all these independent scrolls. The Chizkuni says something very interesting. He says it was up to Moshe, it was Moshe's discretion to decide where each passage should go. So Moshe chose to put one thing here and one thing there. And therefore, there were times, and sometimes there was, there's obviously a reason behind this, but he decided not always to put things in order, perhaps to teach a different message. Right? You're with me? Right? So basically, what we, what we have over here is that Moshe is uh, the editor, and therefore God instructs him all the passages of the Torah, but Moshe decides to put things in different places. And the bottom line is what we find is that the Torah is not always going to necessarily be in order. Back to what we're talking about, the goal of the Mishkan, according to this approach, is that through the building of the Mishkan, it attains forgiveness for the golden calf. And the truth is, there's an argument to be made that even the Beit HaMikdash, even the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, may have also been built in response to a national sin. We're not learning the book of Shmuel right now, uh, but when you go through the book of Shmuel, there's an argument to be made that even the temple, not just the Mishkan, but it was also built as a response, as a way of attaining forgiveness for a sin. Okay. Rashi says something similar. We're going to summarize all these different approaches soon. Don't worry. Okay. Rashi says something similar. Um, and he says like this. So this is in English now. The tabernacle, the testimony, right? He points out that the word that describes the Mishkan is called Mishkan Ha'edut. The Mishkan of literally of the testimony. So what does it mean? It's the testimony. What, what is it testifying to? So the simple explanation, the way the Ramban understands it, is that the Luchot, the Luchos are called Luchos Ha'edus. They are called the, the tablets of testimony. And the Mishkan was built to house those tablets. But Rashi has a much better approach, a much simpler approach. He says, you know why it's called the tabernacle of testimony? The tabernacle was a testimony to Israel that God had shown himself indulgent to them in respect to the instance of the golden calf. For through the temple, he made a Shekhinah dwell amongst them. Now, this is similar. This is similar to the last approach, but it's actually very different. The first approach says that by building the Mishkan, they attain forgiveness. Rashi's saying, and it's based on a Medrash, that God says build a Mishkan so that his presence would reside among the Jewish people so that they would know that he forgave them. Do you hear the difference, right? In other words, according to that last approach, it's through the building of the Mishkan that they attain forgiveness. It's by the act of building, the excitement, the energy. It's again, it's like I use my mouth for something bad and I'm going to use my mouth for something good. I use my gold for building an idol and I'm going to use my gold for building a house of God. That act is an act of forgiveness. It brings about forgiveness. Rashi says differently. Rashi says the goal of the Mishkan was that the Jewish people felt after they sinned so terribly, they said, God is going to have nothing to do with us. We all feel that way sometimes. Maybe, well, hopefully not often, but, but sometimes we, 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 you know, we think to ourselves, you know, there's no way God still wants to have any relationship with me, right? Maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I've, I've, I've drifted too far. It's, it's been too long. There's no way. And the Jewish people, you could only imagine what they were feeling like at the time. They had just received the Torah. God had just taken them out of Egypt and they go ahead and they serve a golden calf. 
You know, the Midrashim compare it to a, uh, an, excuse me for the graphic, uh, you know, analogy, but it compares it to, to a person who, uh, a woman who, you know, right before she's, or as she's getting married, she goes ahead and has an affair. That's what it is. They're getting married to God. The Harsina is the Chuppah, right? And then they go and serve idols. It's like they've given up, you know, it's terrible, right? So they think there's no way God is going to have anything to do with me. God says, no, forgiveness exists. Tshuva exists. Repentance exists. You could always come back to me. How could I prove it to you? Let's build a house together. Yes, it's true. Had the Jews not sinned, God would not have built this house. But it wasn't that God needed a house, right? One of the questions we asked was, does God need a house? According to the first approach, Nachmanides says, yes, God needs some place on earth to connect to earth. Rashi says it's not about God needing a house. It's that the Jewish people need to feel connected to God. And so God wants to demonstrate that we have a shared living space. So he says, let's build a house together so that you know that I have a relationship with you. Make sense? Okay. So that's approach number three. Uh, Margie, are you raising a hand? Go ahead. But weren't there very few people involved with the building? Uh, building of the Mishkan? No, no, no. Of, of the Golden Calf. Yeah. So you're and, that. And wasn't I mean what I heard, read, whatever, mostly converts who hadn't really. I don't know who was in that group, but are those like under 10%? I mean, I'm making that up. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So the, the sin of the golden calf is one that I hope we'll revisit in two weeks from now um, and talk about together. But, but it, is, it is a puzzling passage in that God threatens to annihilate, to destroy all the Jewish people when it's quite clear that only a small fraction of them sinned. So we have to revisit that question. It's an excellent question. Um, but one way or another, clearly... Clearly, and I, we have to come back and address this, but, but clearly God was disappointed at the entirety of the people to the point that he said, I'm going to wipe them all out, even though, to your point, only a fraction of them sinned. So it's a great question. It's a bigger question. We'll have to come back to when we, when we hopefully tackle, uh, try to tackle the, the sin of the golden calf, which we'll hopefully do in two weeks. Okay? Let's go to approach number four. We're going to go through a bunch of different approaches. This is from a wonderful book called the Kuzari. Um, the Kuzari was written by Rav Yehuda Halevi, a medieval commentator. Um, the Khazar Kingdom, you could Wikipedia it. This is, you know, a, a, an amazing part of history, which we should all know about. There was a very powerful kingdom about a thousand years ago in where modern day Russia is. And the, it is documented that at least the nobility of this kingdom converted to Judaism. Okay, that's basically all we could prove historically. What's, there's a tradition that they converted after conversing with a rabbi. That the tradition is that the head of this, uh, the emperor of this country or this empire um, was uh, struggling, trying to find a faith that made sense to him. And ultimately he interviewed a rabbi and through those conversations, he decided to convert. And along with him, the, some of the nobility converted with him. Now, a few hundred years later, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, this great po- poet and, and philosopher comes along and writes a fictional depiction of that conversation. He uses that, again, the conversation did, there was a conversation that did take place. The Khazar kingdom did exist, but Rav Yehuda Halevi comes along and he uses that story as a backdrop to create a philosophical treatise uh, discussing everything under the sun in Judaism. And in that, one of the many conversations, it's a long book, it's a beautiful book, it's, there's so much there, um, but he explains the function of the Mishkan, we'll read it together. So this is, the way the book works is that it's a dialogue between the Khazar king and the rabbi. So this passage is from the rabbi teaching something to the Khazar king. So he says like this, All nations were given to idolatry at that time. Even had they been philosophers discussing, discoursing on the unity and government of God, they would have been unable to dispense with images and would have taught the masses that a divine influence hovered over this image, which was distinguished by some miraculous feature. Okay? So basically what the rabbi is explaining is that in the ancient world, everyone associated godliness with physical images. That was the reality of the day. Everyone had some form of an image. And even if they believed that God transcended these physical images, everyone believed that in some way he was connected to physical items. Some of them ascribed this to God, even as we today treat some particular spots with reverence, going so far to believe ourselves blessed by their dust and stones, right? We go to the Kotel and what do we do? We kiss the Kotel. We, we enter Israel, we kiss the dust, Right? So we believe that there's some holiness there. 
well, at least some of us do. Uh, well, okay, others ascribe it to the spiritual influence of some star constellation or of a talisman or to other kind, things of that kind. The people did not pay so much attention to a single law as to a tangible image in which they believed. The Israelites had been promised that something visible would descend on them from God, which they could follow, as they followed the pillars of cloud and fire when they departed from Egypt. Okay, so basically when the Jews left Egypt, there was this miraculous vision of a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. This they pointed out, pointed out and turned to it, praising it and worshiping God in its presence. He says something very interesting. It didn't just function as a way of guiding them and protecting them, as we typically read. But Rabbi Yehud, the author, Rabbi Yehud Levi, the author of the Kuzari, suggests that the Jewish people, as they traveled in the desert, they would turn to that cloud and praise it because they saw that that represented God in some way. Thus, they also turned towards the cloud which hovered over Moses while God spoke with him. They remained standing and adoring God opposite, opposite to it. Now, when the people had heard the proclamation of the Ten Commandments, and Moses had ascended the mount in order to receive the inscribed tablets, tables, which he was to bring down to them, and then make an ark which was to be the point towards which they should direct their gaze during their devotions. Okay, so what is he saying over here? What he's saying is that the Jewish people were like all people in the ancient world. The notion of a transcendent God, the notion of a God that you cannot see, was too difficult for them. And the truth, if we be honest with ourselves, we struggle with this, right? You know, if you ask most people, you know, what do you think of? If you were, you know, sometimes we just mumble the words of davening, right? But if you're really, you know, trying to imagine yourself standing in front of God, what do you see? You're all on mute. But sometimes many people tell me they see an old man with a white beard or something. They see something. The second you see something, we've, we've, we're, we're, we've fallen short because God is not anything. God is not even a light. A light is a physical entity, right? God is nothing physical. There is nothing that we could see or imagine that would represent God. So although, you know, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is a philosopher living during the high, uh, the high times of philosophy, and those, the philosophers prided themselves on understanding this notion of an abstract God, which they couldn't, which, you know, completely intellectually. But even we, you know, as sophisticated as we think we are, right, even we struggle with this notion of a God that has no form, that has nothing physical, not even a light represents him. And therefore, he says, that as a concession to human frailty, to our intellectual frailty, how do we connect to a God? And that's why Shul, by the way, to, to go to a place where we daven, or to have a safer Torah, all these things help us because they focus us, right? Even a mezuzah, okay, I have something to look towards. Or even all the, all the mitzvos in many ways are giving us some, something physical, a, a focal point. You know, in meditation, you, so many, many meditation forms have some, something that you meditate on because it helps ground you. Because outside of that, some people struggle with it. It's too abstract. It's too all over the place. And so what Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is suggesting is that the Mishkan was necessary not in response to a sin and not as a way of, of somehow mystically getting God's divine presence down on earth. It was really a concession to the fact that as humans, we have a hard time connecting to an abstract God, certainly in the ancient world, and therefore we needed a Mishkan. The physical home the physical edifice gave us a way of connecting to God. That's it. Okay? So according to this approach, the Mishkan, and by extension, the Beis HaMikdash, is really a concession to human frailty, to our inability to properly understand what God is, and therefore we need something to look at, something to focus on in order to connect to God. Okay? I lost track. I think that was number four. Okay? Let's go a little bit, let's go a little bit further. Let's see one or two other approaches. Um, okay. And uh, let, let, let's see what the Barbanel has to say. The Don Isaac of Barbanel, another amazing uh, character in our, in our medieval history, uh, led, you know, left Spain on the day of their expulsion, um, was offered, according to many, to stay in Spain. Uh, they needed him there. He was apparently very good with numbers, and the, nobili- the, the, the monarchy wanted him to, to stick around, but he chose to leave with those fellow Jews and wrote uh, just an unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievably magnificent commentary on the Torah. And he writes over there like this. It, the goal of the Mishkan was to connect the Jewish people to God's godliness. What does that mean? He says further, So that they won't think that God left the land. 
Meaning, Okay, so basically, there are many nations, he points out, that believe that God created the world. Right? What we call, you know, that God put the world into motion. And then he said, see ya, I got better things to do. And he left. And he's completely unaware of what's going on on earth. How do we remind ourselves that God is still here? So says the Barbanel, in order to remind the Jewish people that God is constantly on earth, they had to have this very dramatic connection to him. And we call that the Mishkan. The Mishkan reminded the Jewish people in a very physical way, right? Um, that, that, there, that basically God is not up in the heavens, but God is connected to us. God is watching over us. God is constantly aware of every single thing we do. And through the Mishkan, through the Mishkan, they were able to remind themselves um, remind themselves the fact that God is with them all the time and God is aware of everything that they do. Okay, um, trying to see just based on time if we should read a little bit further than this. One second. Um, okay, yeah, I, I want to read this line because it's a very important line. inyin. Let's read this. V'shachanti besoch b'nei Yisrael. He said, there's a verse that says God will reside among the Jewish people. V'shalachti besochacham. Um, and I will walk among the Jewish people. Another verse. Or another verse. Itam matam, that God says I'm going to reside with the Jewish people in their impurity. So Nachmanides, remember, he says that God's presence, so to speak, did reside in the Mishkan. The Barbanel is much more of a rationalist. He says, Shu kulo mashol He says it doesn't mean that God is literally on earth. It's a parable. Right? It's a parable to remind us of the fact that God is aware of us. But God isn't practically here with us. God is aware of us, right? So the whole notion of the Mishkan, let's, let's go back to the first approach. The Ramban says the Mishkan is to literally house some of God's divine presence. The Barbanel says it's, not to, it's, it's just to remind us that God is aware of what's going on on earth. Because what does it even mean to house God's divine presence? Right? You, see, you see the fundamental difference over here. The, the Ramban, Nachmanides, is saying something which, is, uh, which we struggle with philosophically. What does it mean? You know, is it true to say that God is more present in a shul, in a synagogue, or a mishkan, than he is in your room right now? What does that even mean? Right? Could you divide God's presence into different parts? Is God not in a cemetery, not in a restroom? Bathroom for you Americans, right? What, 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 you know, do we, do we distinguish, or what, or God doesn't found in any place. God transcends the world, right? So the Barbanel is saying God isn't found in a Mishkan, right? And similarly, um, the, the Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the author of the Kuzri, is saying God's not found in the Mishkan. It's there to help us. The, pro, the last approach we saw, it's helping us because it's giving us a physical entity to look at and then remind ourselves of God. The Barbanel is saying similarly, it's not that God's presence is found in the Mishkan. It's just that by engaging in these practices, it reminds us that God is aware of everything that we're doing. God isn't physically found in any place, right? The first approach is much more mystical and suggesting that God is indeed found more potently in the Mishkan. Okay. Um, let's go a little further. This is the fa- most fascinating approach. This is by Ravavadya Sforno, a, a Sephardic uh, commentator. And this is a global idea. Um, and, and he says like this. This is actually a passage on uh, commenting on the laws of kosher. Okay? So in the context of the laws of kosher, Ravavadya Sforno writes like this. And again, I apologize. I didn't get a chance to translate. He says, Hinei achar shis natsli Yisrael es edyam haruchani he says, the Jewish people, after they lost their spiritual greatness that they received at the giving of the Torah. Remember, the Jewish people, when they received the Torah, were on the loftiest of levels. And then they go ahead and they serve the golden calf and they fall down to a lower level. Okay? So he says, at that higher level, At that higher level, they were worthy of connecting to God without any medium. Remember, what happens at Sinai? God speaks directly to the Jewish people. Initially, they don't even need Moshe. God speaks directly to them, meaning they were elevated to such a point that they don't need any medium. They could speak directly to God. 
Now let's let's explain what this means for a moment. You know, this, this is not as small as it sounds. You know, um, the analogy that that always comes to mind is that you know, um, God is 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 a very intense spiritual power. Okay, we are physical beings. How does a physical being attach to a very very intense spiritual power? So by way of analogy, think of I'm going to think of my cell phone. Okay, here's my phone. I don't know if you could see it. I think you could see it, right? So I need to charge my phone. Okay, so. If I were to take my phone and go to an electric plant, okay, a nuclear electric plant, and go to the center, some there are many people here who have the terminology better than I do, but you go to the, the center, whatever, you know, where all the energy is running, and I take my phone and I plug it in to the center of the electric plant, what happens to my phone? It would blow up. It would be overwhelmed by the intensity of the electricity. Right? So what happens? We basically take the electricity from the nuclear electric plant and we break it down into packets and it runs through the city and it goes to my block into one of those transformers. And when it gets to a transformer, it goes ahead and it breaks it down even further into smaller packets. And then it takes it into my house. I plug my phone into my wall, into the plug and fine. And it's okay because I've broken down the electricity because initially it's so potent, it's so strong, I've broken it down, I've broken it down. When God speaks, so the, the notion of pro- prophecy is, is something which is, the, 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 we believe that God could only communicate to individuals who are on an incredibly spiritual level because if not, we will just get overwhelmed. It would be like plugging a, a, a phone into an electric plant. We're not worthy of that. So normally we need to have either a medium so, so we can't speak directly to God because it's too much, right? So we have mediums. We have things that are broken down. Even a prophet, even a pro- when a, you know, the, the, the Rambam writes that when a prophet would experience prophecy, it would look like they're experiencing an, epilept- uh, an epileptic fit. Why? Because physically it was overwhelming. By the way, um, Muhammad was, you know, they, they, it's described, his prophecies are described as he's having an epileptic fit, um, which is in line with our tradition. That's, uh, we, I don't, we don't believe he's a prophet, but my point is that this notion of, of having a fit is consistent because it's too overwhelming to connect to something so intense. And no, a normal human being would connect to something so intense, wouldn't exist, it would be overwhelming. But, sorry, let's go back to what we're talking about. So the Jewish people were on such a lofty level that they could communicate to God directly. They don't need a prophet to be an intermediary. They don't need an angel. Typically God would communicate to an angel and then to a human being. But here they could connect to God directly. They were on such a high level. They could plug in to the center of the nuclear plant. Unbelievable. Okay. Ka'amru, and that's what the verse says. God says, wherever I mention my name, I'll be connected to you. Right? And that's what, um, I will come to you and I will bless you. And he says, In the future, this will be the case. This, uh, he says that I will, oops, um, I will place my mishkan, my, my residence, in you. Right? Basically, God is saying, you do not need a temple. You do not need a physical edifice to bring my presence down. Remember the Ramban said the purpose of the Mishkan was to bring God's divine presence down to earth and then connect to humankind. Initially, had we not sinned, we would not need that physical edifice. And he writes, in the future, we will not need that physical edifice. God will reside in each and every one of us. We will be so incredibly connected to God. Okay? However, okay? However, they sinned. And therefore, what happened? Ma'as hakel yisparach acherkach. God said, I'm not going to resign my presence in you. After they sinned, God says, forget it. God says to Moshe, after the sin of the golden calf, I cannot reside in you. And basically God says, forget about it. What happens? Moshe argues back. And what's the response? Moshe, what does Moshe accomplish in his prayers when he's begging God? What does he accomplish? Is it taken some rectification? So basically what Moshe accomplishes in his prayers is he says, fine, God, we're not holy enough that you could reside in us, that we could have a personal, completely direct connection. At the very least, allow us to build some physical edifice and through that intermediary, you'll connect to us. You hear what's happening? Right according to this, the goal of the Mishkan it's similar to the Ramban Nachmanides, but it's radically different. It's similar in the sense that he believes that the Mishkan is a place where God's presence is found. 
but it's so incredibly different because he says, had the Jews not sinned the golden calf, we would not have had a Mishkan. Why? We wouldn't have needed a Mishkan. Instead of going to Shul, Shul, Shul would come to you, right? God would come to you. You would just completely connect to God without anything in between. Imagine you'd feel that connection. Right now we struggle so deeply to feel that connection. It would be completely connected, but they sinned. They stooped to a lower level and therefore they needed something to connect them. Moshe begs God, give us something. He gives them a Mishkan. He responds to giving them a Mishkan and through the Mishkan, they're able to connect. And that's at the end of the building of the Mishkan, what happens? God appears in a, in a cloud, God's fire comes down, but that's all as a... Um, you know, that's all plan B, basically, right? It's plan B. Plan A was completely complete connect directly. Plan B was that, okay, they weren't able to connect directly. We have the Mishkan. Parenthetically, the next two lines are fascinating because according to the Sforno, first of all, he says the Mishkan was plan B. It wasn't supposed to happen. He implies that in the future, in the Messianic era, it sounds like he's saying there won't be a Mishkan. We won't need one, which is very difficult to understand. We believe in the rebuilding of the third temple. Okay, we have to understand what he means by that. But he also, just these next two lines, which is not really our focus, but it's just fascinating. I'm going to read it. He says, So God also had to give them a number of mitzvos to, to elevate them, to give them a, a, an ability to connect to the divine. After they've fallen lower, God needed to give them certain mitzvos to allow them to still connect to holiness through eating and through elements of procreation. So that's why he says, the foods, kosher, he says, he says that the laws that relate to sexual activity and the laws of kosher, those are only in response to the sin of the golden calf. Isn't that amazing? He says that had they not sinned with the golden calf, they were on such a lofty level, they didn't need like any extra spiritual exercises. They just had it. They were connected to God. But now they're on this incredibly low, much lower level. And God almost said, forget about it. So we need a, a physical edifice to connect to him. More than that, also physically within our own existence, we need to be able to, to create some extra holiness in our body by abstaining from certain foods, by abstaining from certain activities, by creating certain para parameters in order that we're able to connect to God. That's a wild idea. I, it, it, there's so much to say. It's certainly something to think about. Uh, but let's do a quick review because I want to get to the architecture of, of the Mishkan. So let's just quickly review. And as you see, we touched upon some, some very fundamental ideas, okay? According to the Ramban, Nachmanides, he sees the building of the Mishkan, this is our review, as an extension of the experience of Sinai. He believes that the passages of the Torah are in order, Okay, because immediately after the giving of the Torah, God says build a Mishkan. And he also believes that the Mishkan is a place where God's presence is actually found. Whatever that means, he's a mystic. He believes that God's presence is more potent in the Mishkan. It's a place where God's presence is found in the physical world. Okay, approach number two is that through the building of the Mishkan, they're able to attain forgiveness. They use their energy and their gold and silver to do something bad. Now use your energy and gold and silver to do something good. According to this approach, is, it, is, is, are the, is the Torah in order? It's not in order because the Torah, for some reason, first tells us about the building of the Mishkan and then tells us about the sin of the golden calf. Why it switches the order class for another time, okay? But, um, okay, next we have Rashi who also says it's not in order. It's not that the building was a medium through which they will attain forgiveness, but the Mishkan was a Mishkan, a it was a testimony, it was a reminder to them that God still has a relationship with them. The Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, he says that the Mishkan certainly did not house God's divine presence. It was a concession to intellectual weakness, meaning the Jewish people couldn't imagine an abstract God. And therefore, God recognized that I have to give them a physical place that they could connect to me because without that, they wouldn't be able to connect to me because the notion of a God that transcends the physical world is something we struggle with. So I'll get, let you build a house that you could turn to. But of course, God is not found in that house. Similarly, the Barbanel understands that the goal of the Mishkan was meant as a reminder that God is present in the world, not in the sense that he's physically present, but that God is aware of what's taking place on earth. And the last and most fascinating approach to me is the fact that after the golden calf lowered their level, they needed something like a Mishkan. They were going to connect to God directly, but after they went to this lower level, they needed to connect to God through an intermediary force and that's what the Mishkan's function is. Any questions before we 
move to our architecture se- segments of this class. And we'll wrap up with this. If you have a question, I can't see the whole screen, so just take yourself off of mute. And we're going to roll. Okay, so here we go. This is the last thing I want to share with you is from a, a wonderful book called Animamin by Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman. Okay, I recommended it a little while ago. And he points out this. Okay, I'm going to try to get this on one screen so we can see it together. This, anyone know what this is? I'd be very impressed if you know what this is. Okay, don't read what it says. That would be, that would be cheating. Okay, um, what is this? This, let's make this a little bit smaller so you can just see it clearly in one screen. Okay, can you see that? Make your screen a little bigger, okay? This is a very, one of the oldest images that we have from the ancient world, okay? Um, this is something that could be found in a number of places uh, that goes all the way back, all the way back to the year 1274 before the Common Era, okay? This is a depiction of the most important battle between the Egyptians and the, Hittite, the, the Hittites, okay? Um, the, Egypt, the Egyptians won this battle, okay? And King Ramses, Pharaoh II, went ahead and he wanted everyone to know about his great defeat. They're not defeats, his great victory. So what did he do? He created these monuments that were placed all over Egypt to depict the victory. To this day, we have 10 of those monuments in existence, which is, from a historical perspective, quite significant to have something from that, uh, 10 similar uh, um you know, um, of those, of those monuments. And in those monuments, basically for people who couldn't read, they have pictures depicting the victory, right? This is such a, a, this is the Chitim where the Chitites were the, the, the prime enemy, one of the prime enemies in the region and the and they defeated them decisively. And so one of the images and one of the central images is the camp of Ramses, the king, the Pharaoh, uh, which is depicted above. Okay. So again, could you see it? Um, I'm going to make, yeah, you see the, you see the image over here? You're looking at it. So, right. So let's just look around. We have his army surrounding him on four sides. And then over here, I hope you see my arrow over here. You have his actual tent. Okay. And over here, we're going to zoom into this in a moment. This is where Ramses himself, that's where he resided. Okay. So that's the picture we have of Ramses two, the second, um, and his battle. This is one of the most ancient images we have of his battle. Now there's a question that has uh, puzzled historians uh, of the Bible, and that is the Mishkan structure is a very unique one. It's very unique. There's no similarities that we know of the ancient world. I should have said that before I showed you this picture. But there is one very interesting similarity, right? You, you, I'm sure you saw it already, right? Let's go a little bit further. Maybe I'll give you, for, for those who need a little bit more uh, visuals over here, right? So look at this image on the right, right? Do you see the image on the right? Make it a little bit smaller. This is a depiction, a drawing of, okay, let's do this again. Sorry, I'm making it a little smaller so I can fit the whole screen, or at least my screen. You see that? Okay. Um, this over here is a taking out all the soldiers and everything on the top. That is the Pharaoh's, you know, the area around the Pharaoh's, uh, the Pharaoh's um, meeting place. And then if you zoom into that picture, you have the actual tent, and then you have his actual chamber over here. Right under it, you have an exact depiction of the Mishkan. This is an identical, identical view, right? You have that square area, which is the Chatzar, the courtyard. You have the Kodesh, which is the tent, and you have the Holy of Holies over there as well. Look on the, look on the, did I say left before, right before? Now look on the right, right? Look at this image. This is zoom, zooming in, okay? This is his actual tent. What do you see in the actual meeting place of Ramses II? Do you see those, those little figures over there? Something very interesting about them, right? So Ramses is presumably in the middle and he's surrounded by some beings which have nice little wings around him, which sounds a whole lot similar to our Ark, the Aron, right? Covering the Aron, which was placed in that exact location, you have God's presence with those wings. The similarities are uncanny, right? That's pretty amazing. You with me? You catching this, right? So let's just go back to that original picture, just so you could see it, because it's pretty amazing now that now that you appreciate it, right? So you have the army on all his own army on all four sides, which is exactly, by the way, how the Mishkan were were told traveled with the Jewish people on the four sides surrounding it, his army surrounding it. You have his general courtyard over here, and then you have the inner tent over here, and over here is where Ramses is actually found. This is exactly what the Jewish 
Mishkan look like, our Mishkan look like? What's with the similarities? Very strange. What would be the purpose of these similarities? Was it just a matter of plagiarism? Like, what's going on over here? Was, was God not creative enough that we had to, like, rip off the Egyptian, you know, imagery over here? What's going on? It's very strange, right? What's, what's, what do we make of this comparison, right? So Rabbi Dr. Um, Joshua Berman wants to suggest the following. He uses a word that's very a hot-button word in our, in our modern culture, and that is cultural appropriation. Right? It's a bad word nowadays, okay? I got in some trouble online on Facebook for that, okay, uh, the other day. But right, basically, there's this notion of cultural appropriation where you take something from one culture and you use it in another. Oftentimes, it's seen, it's, it's seen as offensive, right? If I go ahead and I take something from one culture and I now take it to my own culture, I just appropriate it from something from them. I've in some way, right, without actually doing something to them physically, I've taken something in some ways even more meaningful and I've abused it. I've used it for myself. I basically said, your, your identity is not as important. So cultural appropriation oftentimes, well, it could happen inadvertently, it could happen deliberately. What Rabbi Berman suggests, and actually he has a whole long thesis, which we're not going to go through, but much of the terminology, and I recommend, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, but much of the terminology that we find in the context of the battle of the Jewish people against Egyptians. One term that's found very often, just as one example, that's only found in the context of God defeating the Egyptians is Yad HaChazaka, God's great hand. We don't find that same term in the context of the battles in Canaan. Why not? Okay? And so that term, the great hand, is actually a term that's found very often in Egyptian literature describing the greatness of the pharaohs and how they use their great hands in their battles. In other words, what he suggests, and again, I'm not doing justice to this entire thesis, what he suggests is that there is a deliberate cultural appropriation over here, that this imagery that we're looking at over here, again, this was widely disseminated all over Egypt to demonstrate what? To demonstrate the great might and the power of the Egyptians. And what does God do? He says, the great hands, I'll show you a great hand. This is the Yara Chazaka of God. You think you have a great hand? See you later. Bye-bye. You're getting drowned in the Yamsuf. You think you're so powerful? This is your imagery? We are going to take that same imagery. It's in some ways a way of negating the Egyptians. Right? It's in some ways a culmination of the Exodus. The Jews who are the slaves are basically saying, you think this is your might, this is your power, this is an image that's just ingrained in the minds of all the Jews? We use that same architectural model to say that no. God is the true God. Your might is meaningless in light of God's might. And therefore, the Mishkan, in some ways, is a culmination and a rebuttal, an appropriation, but a, a rebuttal to the Egyptians' claim to power in the architecture of the Mishkan. That doesn't negate any of the approaches we just said, but it does address a fundamental question of where does this imagery come from? Very fascinating theory that it perhaps comes from the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian. Uh, imagery of bravery, of their courage, of their power, and God is saying, no, I'm the one with the power, uh, you know, it is Hashem who is in charge, it is Hashem who is, in, who is the powerful one, and therefore we deliberately appropriated their imagery. Okay, so we, I think, I hope we learned a lot about the Mishkan, uh, both in terms of why the Mishkan exists, a little bit about does God's presence actually reside, about the ordering of the Torah, and a fascinating theory in terms of the architecture of the Mishkan, I hope you all have a fabulous, fabulous Shabbos.